The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Bill was a single guy who lived with his mother and his cat. Bill loved his mother and he loved his cat. And he decided to take a month-long vacation in Europe all on his own. And he wanted to kind of go under the radar, off the grid when it came to social media. So he left his phone in his hotel room every day in the safe in his room. And he told his best friend back, uh, back home, he said, listen, only contact me if it's an absolute emergency. I just want to relax my mind for a month. So first uh, week, Bill's off to and around in Europe. He gets back to his hotel room, checks his phone, and there's a message from his best friend. And the message was three simple words. Your cat died. Well, Bill says, come on. He contacts his friend and says, listen, you, you got to be more sensitive in how you share bad news. You don't just say your cat died. You break it to someone gently. He said, like, first you send a message like, your cat climbed up on the roof. And then a couple days later, your cat's stuck on the roof. And then a day or two later, your cat fell off the roof. And then a couple days later, I'm sorry to tell you, your cat died. And his friend said, I am so sorry for my insensitivity. I'll do my best to learn from this. So about a week later, Bill gets back to his hotel room, checks his phone, and there's a message from his friend. And the message said, your mother climbed up on the roof. (laughs) Sharing bad news is never easy. And today, it's my challenge to share some bad news with you. You see, in today's installment of our Life Lesson series, we're looking at some tragic events that escalated into even more tragic events. Last week, our story, that story of Abigail, had a fairy tale ending. Not so this week. Today, we're looking behind the scenes into the home life of Israel's most famous king, King David, the man who ruled over Israel roughly 3,000 years ago. And in the next few moments, we're going to be dealing with some pretty ugly stuff from David's life. Just let me give you a heads up. The Bible doesn't gloss over the ugliness and the darkness and debauchery. A lot of people think if they read it in the Bible, it means God's endorsing it. No, not at all. The Bible is a historical account of what actually happened. And the next few moments might get uncomfortable for some because the Bible gets pretty graphic in today's story. Portions of our discussion today might set off some emotional triggers for some people. I I just want to give you a fair warning, but we're just looking at what the Bible records. Now, King David was a guy who was celebrated for many things in his life. He was a brave young shepherd who fought lions and bears in his determination to protect his father's flocks. He used his bravery and fighting skill to single-handedly destroy Goliath, the giant of a man who was harassing the nation of Israel. David was an accomplished general who routed foreign armies on the battlefield and won wars that enlarged Israel's territory. He was a celebrated, skilled politician. He brought together all 12 tribes under one umbrella, and he formed them into a strong, unified nation. But he was more than a weapons and warfare guy. He was also a very skilled and accomplished poet and musician. He wrote songs that are still being sung thousands of years later. In fact, God himself described David as, and I quote, a man after my own heart. In other words, David pursued God, sometimes in spite of his own 
failures and foolishness. So David is celebrated for many things. Shepherd, warrior, politician, musician, songwriter, God chaser. But do you know something David isn't celebrated for? His home life. David wasn't a very good husband and he wasn't a very good father. In fact, you will never find a book entitled How to Parent Like David. They just don't exist. The truth is, David's home was a disaster. He had too many wives and he had too many children and this multitude of wives and children only exposed his lack of parenting and family skills. And so for the next few minutes, we're gonna follow the life of just one of David's 19 sons. Today's story is about a young man named Absalom. And we're gonna see how David's failure to parent Absalom contributed to the disaster that came to mark Absalom's life. And when we're done, we're going to see what lessons we can learn from the messy area of David's life. Well, act one in today's drama begins in the 13th chapter of the Old Testament book known as 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, take the copy of the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you as our gift to you today. Well, let me begin reading. It says, in the course of time... Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, I realize this kind of is a little bit confusing at first, so let me do my best to make it clear. Amnon and Absalom were siblings within a polygamist marriage. In other words, they were brothers from different mothers. Their father, David, had eight wives and 10 concubines, meaning 10 other women with whom he had sexual uh, partners. He was partnership. Now, polygamy is a complicated matter in the Old Testament. It was a serious part and settled part of ancient culture, but it was never endorsed by God, and it was never portrayed in a positive light in Scripture. It was always portrayed as leading to dysfunction. Now, Tamar and Absalom came from the same mother, Amnon came from a different mother, but they all had the same biological father, David. Now, Amnon became infatuated with Tamar, his half-sister. And Amnon's lust for her grew to the point where he acted upon it. The Bible puts it this way. It says, since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Amnon forced himself upon his sister. He had sex with her. And then he immediately felt shame for what he had done. And that shame turned to anger, and he tossed her aside like a discarded wrapper. And then the Bible goes on to say this. When King David heard of all this, he was furious. Well, David may have felt furious, but the truth is he did nothing. He literally did nothing. His eldest son, the heir to the throne, raped a sibling, and David, the king, looked the other way. The Bible goes on to say this. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. So Tamar, understandably, ran to her full biological brother, Absalom, and told him everything. Absalom took her into his home and sheltered her, but he said nothing to Amnon. 
He waited for his father, David, to act, to deal with this crime, to discipline Amnon. Absalom waited for days, for weeks, for months. Absalom waited a couple years. And the silence and inactivity of David was maddening. David did nothing. And that nothingness fueled Absalom's rage. So in the shadows, he plotted a way to avenge his sister's honor. And that brings us to act two in this family tragedy. The Bible goes on to say this. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazar near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. So in other words, Absalom says, okay, my dad's going to do nothing. I've waited two years. If he's going to do nothing, I'll do something. So Absalom calls together all of his brothers, his male siblings for a party. Hey, I'm going to throw a party. Come on, brothers, let's all get together. So they do. But it's a ruse. Absalom wants to get Amnon so he can kill him. So Absalom says to his friends, listen, during this party, I'm going to get my brother so drunk, he'll be drunk out of his mind. And then when I say, all right, kill him, rally around him, stab him, kill him. And then I'm sure these guys looked at him and said, no way, we're not going to kill Amnon. He's the heir to your dad's throne. Absalom said, listen, it's on me. I'm giving you the order. Don't worry about it. So that's what happens. They have a big party. He gets Amnon drunk. He says, kill him. And they all kill Amnon. That brings us to act three. Absalom's maternal grandfather, that's his mother's father, he was the king of a neighboring land. David likely married Absalom's mother, not out of love, but out of political expediency. Marrying a local king's daughter ensured that you maintain peace with that neighboring country, with that local king. These political marriages may have created healthy borders, but they didn't create healthy families. Instead, they fed competitions within families. It was toxic. And the Bible says that Absalom ran to his grandfather's kingdom for protection. Here's what it says. After Absalom had fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. Meanwhile, King David longed to go to his son Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. And then it says, Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. What's going on here? Who's Joab? Joab was King David's right-hand man. Think of him as King David's vice president. Vice President Joab saw how David was always pouting, always wondering for the couple years, where's Absalom? I wonder how Absalom's doing. I miss him. I've gotten over. I've been consoled about my grief about Amnon, and now I miss Absalom. Joab tried to say, listen, go get him, bring him back to Jerusalem. But for a couple years, David wouldn't budge. And then finally, Joab convinced David, call him back. And so he did. Absalom gets the invitation and he accepts it. It sounded great. His father wanted to reconcile with him. Yes, excellent. So Absalom heads home to Jerusalem, nervous, but feeling loved and wanted, feeling hopeful for the first time in a long time. But what he finds when he returns to Jerusalem is not what he expected. The Bible puts it this way. King David said, 
He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and didn't see the face of the king, his dad. What was David thinking? How confusing and painful this must have been for Absalom. The feelings of rejection must have been immense. Welcome home, now stay away. Absalom put up with this for a couple of years. And then he finally tries to meet with President, Vice President Joab. He tries to book a meeting with Joab to see what's going on. But Joab ignores all of Absalom's letters. He says, no, uh, he just doesn't even respond to Absalom's requests. So Absalom gets so frustrated after a couple of years that his rejection has now rotted into resentment. And so he sets fire to Joab's field as a way of getting Joab's attention. You're going to ignore my letters? Oh yeah, well, try this. And he lights his fields on fire. That gets Joab's attention. And Joab sets up a meeting between Absalom and David. Well, a peace was made between a father and son, but it was only a surface peace. The pain and the dysfunction ran deep, and it was being ignored. And so the rejection that had rotted into resentment now rushes into rebellion. And that leads us to the fourth and final act in this dramatic story. The Bible says, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, the Bible describes Absalom uniquely. It said that he was an incredibly handsome man, that it said he had no blemish from the top of his head to the tip of his toes, and it said something else unique. It said his hair was so thick and luscious that it was so heavy, it made his head heavy, that he would have to cut it once a year, and when he cut it, it weighed five pounds. I have the same problem. My hair, if I were to let it go, it would just be so heavy that I cut it weekly instead of yearly. But the Bible says Absalom's hair was so thick, it weighed five pounds when he cut it once a year. And the Bible says that what Absalom would do was this, because he was so resentful of his dad. In those days, if you wanted to meet with the king, city hall was like the city gates. That was the city gates. And so that's where all the business of the city would happen. And people would come from all over the country to the city gates, and that's where they would interact with government officials. What Absalom would do was this. He would set up a table outside of the city gates, on the way to the city gates on the road. And he would meet with people who'd be coming along from all parts of the country. And he would stop them and say, hello, I am Absalom, King David's son. Tell me, where do you come from in the land? I come from Dan, I come from Ephraim, I come from whatever tribe. And he would say, why are you coming to the city? Well, we have some concerns we'd like to bring to the king. And Absalom would say this, the king is too busy for you. You know, I don't really think the king cares about your concerns. But you know something? If I, Absalom, was king, it would be different. After doing this for a few years, Absalom felt the time was right, that he had stirred up enough dissension within the land to successfully stage a coup. So the Bible says this. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And that's exactly what he did. He proclaimed himself king in the city of Hebron and that spread through the land. And a large enough group of people rallied around him that David no longer felt safe in his own city and in his own palace. So David packed up his eight wives. He left his 10 concubines to take care of his palace and David went into hiding. 
Absalom then took this opportunity. He rode triumphantly into uh, the, the capital city, Jerusalem. He took over the city and he took over his dad's palace. And as a public act of rebellion and humiliation of his dad, Absalom set up a tent on the roof of the palace and he had sex with his father's concubines. The anger and the rage ran deep in this young man's life. Well, after a while, Absalom went out with his men hunting to kill his father. And one day, while riding in a thick forest, Absalom's life comes to the most bizarre end. Remember that thick, luscious head of hair that Absalom was so proud of? Read this. It says, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while his mule he was riding kept on going. Joab took three javelins. The vice president, Joab, took three javelins in his hands, and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Absalom's riding along, his hair gets caught in a tree, the mule keeps going, Absalom's dangling by his hair, Joab stumbles upon him and kills him. David returned to his throne in Jerusalem, the coup was put down, and he deeply mourned the loss of another one of his sons. What a tragic and unnecessary ending to a life. It was death by dysfunction. Well, This series is called Life Lessons, so it's our task to now see what we can salvage from the debris field that was David's family. Let me begin by asking you some simple questions. Let me ask you this. Does loving God guarantee you'll be a good hockey player? Does loving God guarantee you'll be an effective lawyer? Does loving God guarantee that you'll be an accomplished school teacher? Does loving God guarantee that you will be a straight A student? Of course not. We understand that just because you love God doesn't automatically mean that you'll be skilled in every area of your life. Which brings us to the first life lesson from David's dysfunction. As your outline says, loving God does not guarantee you'll be a loving parent. Loving God does not guarantee you'll be a loving parent. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Loving God is crucial to living a successful life. Loving God sets you up for success in the rest of your life, into eternity. Loving God is the foundation upon which you build an ultimately successful life. However, loving God does not automatically make you an instant expert in every area of life. David was a man after God's own heart. David pursued God, often in spite of his own failures and stupidity. But just because David had a heart that was sensitive to the things of God does not mean David was automatically an ideal parent. In fact, as we've seen today, he clearly wasn't an ideal parent, not in the least. Loving God is a desire that must be fed, but parenting is a skill that must be learned. I remember 30 years ago now when our first child was born and I remember taking him from the hospital in downtown Toronto and opening the back door of our car and placing our firstborn child into his car seat. I can, I can still picture it right now. As I'm leaning there, putting him in and strapping him in this car seat, I remember thinking, how are they letting me do this? Why are they not stopping me from doing this? 
I have no idea how to be a father. I have no idea how to parent. I didn't take a course. I don't have a license. I'm taking this child home. I am scared to death. Okay, so I want to be a better parent. What does that mean? What do I have to do? What kind of skills does a loving parent possess? Well, we don't have time for an exhaustive list today, but from today's story, we can see three skills that would have made a world of difference in Absalom's life. First of all, a loving parent honors their spouse consistently. A loving parent honors their spouse consistently. A man was waking up from anesthesia after surgery, and his wife was sitting by his side. His eyes fluttered, and he looked at her, and he said, you're beautiful. And then he went back to sleep. About a half hour later, his eyes fluttered again. He looked at her and he said, you, you, you're so cute. And she said, whoa, whoa, time out. Half hour ago, I was beautiful. Now I'm cute. What's up with that? And he says, the drugs are wearing off. <laughs> a loving parent honors their spouse consistently. That means even when the drugs are wearing off. When it comes to how to do this, how to honor your spouse consistently, Paul's advice in Ephesians chapter 5 in the Bible is the best place to begin. Now, the passage we're about to read is one of the most misquoted, misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. But when you take time to actually study it, it's incredibly powerful. Listen to what it says. Ephesians 5 verse 21, starting. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, pay attention. You love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Notice how it begins. Notice verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is not a one-way road. Husbands are, and wives are called to submit to one another. That means that the spouses are called to honor one another consistently. And the Apostle Paul then takes a moment to quickly unpack what this would look like for each spouse. Wives are to respect their husbands with the same respect they have for Christ. And Paul points out a wife can do that by honoring her husband as the leader of the home. Well, yeah, well, what about husbands? How can they demonstrate honor to their wives? Paul says husbands are to love their wives with the same sacrificial love that Christ has for the church. Think about what that means. That means that a husband is to honor his wife by making her fulfillment his priority to place her in his relationship spotlight, to do everything he can to see that her life reaches her full potential. That is God's design for marriage. That is what submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means. That's what it means to honor your spouse consistently. David didn't do this. How could he? How can you honor your spouse when you have eight of them plus 10 other sexual partners? When you don't honor your spouse, you create an environment of hostility and resentment in your home. 
And that environment can be a breeding ground for tragedy. Now, are you in a relationship where it's particularly difficult to honor your spouse? Last week, we learned from the story of Abigail, we learned some techniques and survival skills. But we also learned last week that there are times when the best way to honor is to go your separate ways. Well, what does it mean to be a loving parent? Learning lessons from David's failure, we've seen that a loving parent honors their spouse consistently, but there's more. Also, a loving parent disciplines their children wisely. They discipline their children wisely. For whatever reason, David refused to discipline his children. He could rule a nation, but he couldn't rule over his own home. He could discipline strangers, but he couldn't discipline his own children. Now, when we say discipline, what do we mean? The word discipline means to instruct, to correct, to direct. To discipline a child is to hold that child accountable for their inappropriate behavior, to equip them with skills to change that behavior, and to provide them with ways to make amends for that inappropriate behavior. David didn't do this, and the fruit of his failure is plain to see today. Now, notice that we said a loving parent disciplines wisely. You see, there are right ways and there are wrong ways to discipline. And a verse that's often associated with this topic is found in Proverbs chapter 22. The Bible says this in 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. What exactly is this verse teaching? Let's remember that Proverbs is poetry, so this verse must be interpreted as poetry. When you write poetry, you use poetic devices and descriptive, picturesque language. The rod of discipline is just such language. What is a rod of discipline? Well, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as a rod of discipline per se. Here's my hammer, here's my saw, oh, and here's my rod of discipline. No, that didn't exist. Rod of discipline was not some ancient torture device. All right, jailer, these criminals don't seem to be getting the message. Bring me the rod of discipline. No, the ancient writer was speaking to a culture that was very familiar with shepherds and how they operated. He was using the word picture of a shepherd and his staff. A shepherd used his staff as a tool to direct and to steer his sheep. And the shepherd's staff was not a tool that the shepherd used to beat the sheep. Remember Psalm 23, perhaps the most famous psalm in the Bible? David wrote it. The Lord is my shepherd, I'll lack nothing. And then in that psalm, he said about the shepherd, your rod and your staff, they beat me. That's not what he said. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Disciplining a child is not beating a child. Rod of discipline was a poetic way of communicating instruction, correction, direction. What this proverb says is this, a young child can have foolish thoughts that can lead to foolish actions. If you guide, correct, and instruct them, if you hold them accountable, they will learn to leave that foolishness far behind them. Having said that, there is an ongoing debate about whether or not it is ever appropriate to spank a child. Godly, intelligent people disagree in this matter. 
Some say that spanking is never an appropriate option, that it should never be a parental option. Others say that done properly and wisely, spanking can have a role in a toddler's life. Now, whichever side of the debate one is on, all agree that spanking is not ideal and it should always be used as a last resort. All agree that there are more preferable ways of instructing, correcting, and directing a child than inflicting physical discomfort upon them. All agree that spanking should never be one's go-to discipline method, and it should certainly never be done in anger. Okay, today we're learning lessons from the pain and drama that flowed from the dysfunction that was David's home. We've learned that loving God doesn't guarantee you'll be a loving parent. Being a loving parent is not an instinct that we automatically have. It's a skill we need to learn. So what does a loving parent do? What skills do they possess? So far, David's dysfunction has taught us that a loving parent honors their spouse consistently and disciplines their children wisely. And that brings us to the third skill we can learn from David's failure. A loving parent interacts with their children regularly. Now, the truth is, strictly speaking, we don't know how many children David actually had. The Bible names 19 sons that he had through eight wives. The Bible names only one daughter, Tamar, the daughter in today's story. But it's very likely he had more than one daughter from eight wives. As well, there's no listing of any further children David had with his 10 concubines. Hear hear me, folks. It's one thing to have a child. It's another thing to be a parent. Being a loving parent means being a lasting presence. A big part of parenting is showing up, being a reliable face and voice in your child's life. Clearly, David had more children than he could lovingly parent. Think back to when David had Absalom brought back from exile to live in Jerusalem again after being in hiding for three years. Do you remember what David did? David brought him home, sure, but he refused to be a presence in Absalom's life. And this refusal and rejection would have done great harm to Absalom's heart. Don't get me wrong, I'm not making excuses for Absalom's behavior. He was accountable for his deeds. But David put his son in a terrible position. And the Apostle Paul described it this way in Ephesians chapter 6. The Bible says, fathers and mothers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This was written originally in ancient Greek, and that word exasperate literally means to provoke or to push their buttons. Paul is saying, parents, don't set your kids up for failure by putting them in no-win situations, by withholding from them things they sincerely need to thrive in life. David exasperated Absalom. Every child sincerely needs and longs for an ongoing relationship with their parents. And withholding that from them is like withholding food. It will lead to a malnourishment of their soul. That's why a loving parent interacts with their children regularly. Well, let's conclude. Folks, none of us was raised by perfect parents and none of us are perfect parents. Let's just settle that right now. I gotta confess that in preparing for today's lesson made me pause and cringe several times as I was working on this. 
as I thought back to moments in my own parenting journey that I wish I could take back. We all have great intentions and we all have great regrets. Perhaps you're here and you're a parent. Can I give you one last piece of advice? Don't beat yourself up. Don't walk out of this auditorium beating yourself up. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your children about your fears and your failures, but don't beat yourself up. Simply move on doing your best to learn and to grow as a father or mother. In fact, why not find a way today to let your children know how much you love them? Perhaps you're here and you have a mother or father still living. Can I make a suggestion to you as well? Be gracious to them. Be gracious with them. Parenting is tougher than you think. We parents, we pretend we know what we're doing, but you have no idea how often we speak to you, then we go into our own room, shut the door, put our head in our hands and say, oh God, please help me, I have no idea what I'm doing. That happens all the time. Why not find a way to tell your parents how much you appreciate what they've done and what they're trying to do in your life? 